Well, good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we want to look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, in our time together this morning to kind of continue on the uh, issue of Christ-centered living. And one of the beautiful things about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ did not come into our lives just to give us some hope of what will happen in the future. Of course it does that. But it transforms us now, doesn't it? And those relationships that were skewed and ruined because of the fall can now be renewed because of Jesus Christ. And when you come to Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 6, he focuses in on the areas of family and work and community and talks about the transformation that a Christ-centered life brings in all those areas. So I, I want to give you hope. Wherever you find yourself in those most difficult relationships, God is about teaching and transforming. At least you. Can't do anything about the other person. Fair enough. So listen to what he says here uh, concerning the home. He first of all is going to deal with the husband-wife relationship. Um, and, and this is not at all unusual. You will find this also in the book of Ephesians, which we may look at briefly also. Colossians and Ephesians were written about the same time as Paul sitting in prison. And so it's interesting sometimes to kind of complement the one with what you find in the other. So we'll, we'll, we'll do some of those things. Looks at the, at the husband-wife relationship. Now, a couple things I want to say about this. I think it's really, really important. When you look at um, I'll use my wife and I as, a, as, a, as an example here, Sherry and I. Um, is Sherry any less of a person because she's a woman married to me, a man? Th does God look at our marriage and say, well, you know, Doug's up here and Sherry's down here as persons? Absolutely not. As persons, we are absolutely equal. Which is exactly what First Peter says when he talks about a man leading his wife. He says, don't you ever forget that as persons before God, you are co-heirs of the grace of God. You are absolutely equal as persons. And yet, you're given different roles within that marital relationship. And that's really important. When you think of the husband-wife relationship, the other thing I think that's really important that you find threaded all the way through Scripture is... The bulk of the husband-wife relationship is the, is the relationship of friends that deeply love each other. Isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the bulk. I mean, Shuri is my best friend. And, and what we do together, we do as friends. Now, having said that, am I called to a position of leadership in that home? Will I answer at the end of the day? You got it. And is Sherry called to a position of submission in that home? which we've talked, we've wrestled, we've gone through the topic, we've talked it over, we've thought about alternatives. At the end of the day, she's got to say, okay, um, God is big enough, I can rest in this guy who I even disagree with in this moment. Oh yeah, I mean, it's part of life, isn't it? And so God establishes these models for us in the home. Um, and I know it's not always popular with the world around us. The world wants to reframe that and call it different things and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, God gets to call the shots. It's his world. And he can design it, and he has designed it in the way that's best for humanity. So look at what he says here um, in, in verse 18. Wives, 
Be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, um, this is always a little bit awkward for a guy to be speaking to women on, you know, because you, you feel like it's almost kind of self-serving, you know. But, but nonetheless, it's in the text, right? So here we go. Here's one of the things I think is really important when he talks about submission. Submission is not being a doormat, is it? It's nothing to do with what the scripture is saying. But it, it does mean that as, as deeply as obedience to Christ will allow, you want to try to encourage your husband in his God-given position of leadership in that home. And that's, that's easy for Sherry when we agree. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's no problem. When, is, when will she be stretched when we disagree? And, and, and I often picture it like this. You know, if, if here stands the woman and here's the man and they've talked and they've wrestled and they've gone through the whole scenario and they still disagree and somebody is called to make a judgment call in an area. And, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not thinking of areas, should we make the carpet blue or green? You know what, guys? Give it up to the woman and forget it. it there's things, for, I mean, if they're preferential issues, just forget it. It's just not important. If it's an issue that will affect the glory of God and the, and the health of your home, you've talked it through, you've got to make the call. I mean, that's, just the, that, that's, that, that's how it works. So you've wrestled through that kind of thing and she submits to him, always behind the man, looming much larger is Christ, is the way the Bible portrays it. So the, the reason she is empowered to submit to him it's because she sees somebody behind him that she can trust. Isn't that the way it works? I mean, I, I've never been a wife in a marital situation, obviously. But I've worked in a church seminary situation, and I've never been the head honcho. You know, I've always, I've always been one of the professors, and there's always a dean and a president or somebody above me. You know, in the church, I've been an assistant, but I've never been the guy, the senior pastor. So... I know what it's like to go into an office and say, you know what, I think you're really wrong on this one. I think this is, and not, not moral issues, okay? I'm just saying, I think this is not prudent. I would not do it for these reasons. And he's listened, and he said, yes, Doug, I understand, I understand, and, which I'm not always sure he does, but I go through it. And, and, and then he says, okay, but we're still going to do this. So what do I do with that? Well, I, I, I could quit, I suppose. But, but what I've chosen to do through the years is, is say, okay, Behind you is a sovereign God who, when I think you make a decision that's unwise, is still the sovereign God, and I can rest in him, even though I disagree with you. And I can go on and be your friend and move together. The problem is in a marriage, well, people do quit. But it's never God's design, is it? And, and I certainly know there's, there's issues that surface and we won't get into that whole issue but, but normally within a home what God wants you to do is actually submit here's the other thing I think is really important this submission which should go into all areas um, is always subordinated to Jesus Christ so if a husband would ask a wife to directly do something that was wrong should she do it? never because at the end of the day her ultimate submission is to a higher authority so, so Paul says, look, let me talk about the husband-wife relationship. And here's the point. When he says this expression, as is fitting in the Lord in the text, what happens is he comes into a system. And you know, look, 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 folks, if you think there's issues and struggles 
in our homes in this day. You had to read some of the stuff you find out from the first century. That could be just off the charts what people goes through, went through. And one of the things the gospel does, it comes into present structures and it gives people hope by putting Christ at the very center. And that's what gives strength so often. She talks to women on this issue of being submissive, which, which obviously includes both the attitudes as well as the actions. Then he switches gears and looks at the husbands. This is interesting to me. What he says to the guys. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Now, why would you even have to say to somebody, don't be embittered? You know why? Because she did something that can make me embittered. <laughs> right? Hey, Paul's a realist. Paul says, look, if you enter into a relationship for an extended period of time with somebody over the long haul, she's going to tick you off sometimes. She's going to annoy you. And, and him too, okay? But, but in this text, there's a reason Paul's doing this. And he's going to say, look, your tendency sometime as a man is to, to so focus on the negative that's all you see. And it, and it, I, actually, I was going to take my glasses off, but I can't. They're kind of taped to this thing, so I won't do that. But it, is, it can be a mess. We can have a real issue here, so I'll just leave them alone. Um, but it, I mean, it's like if, if I colored my glasses blue, and every time I looked at Sherry, what would I say? Blue. And some guys can get so bent out of shape because of a particular negative kind of a thing that that's all they see when they look at their wife. And here's something else I think is really fascinating. You read the Greco-Roman literature, and almost without exception, there are, I, I would suggest there's, there's maybe some exceptions here, overwhelmingly the focus when it talks about the husband in a relationship is he's the boss and he leads and he has control. The scripture doesn't focus on that at all, does it? No, he's the leader. And he's called to that position of leadership. When the Bible looks at that, the Bible says, look, you are responsible at the, at the end of the day to love her. Not to use her. Not to abuse her. No, not at all. And so he says, look, rather than focusing on the negative, I want you to move towards your wife. And, and what Paul does, and if you're reading this as a Colossian, somebody from Colossae, you know, you, you're not familiar with this stuff. You're saying like, well, this Paul, he's like, really like redoing this whole marriage thing like i thought this guy was the boss and he's now responsible to love you got it and if you go over and read ephesians chapter 5 he expands that doesn't he and when he says to love he says you should love us what as christ has loved the church so once again who becomes center in our homes when a wife submits at the end of the day christ shapes everything when the man leads, he leads in such a way that he loves and he nurtures this woman. Because that's what leaders are ultimately supposed to do. And he does it as Christ has done the church. If you go back and read Ephesians chapter 5, at great cost to himself, the Bible tells us Christ came. He died for the church. And remember what it says? He died for the church so that the church might be beautified in all of its purity at the end of the day. You know what that tells me? In my marriage, Paul would look at me and say, you know, Doug, you know what your responsibility is with Sherry? 
You need to love her at great cost, which means it's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you effort. It's going to cost you your own desire. It's going to cost you all that stuff. And you need to do it in such a way that I use you to beautify your wife so that she might become everything I've designed her to be. Well, guys, that kind of spins it a little bit different, doesn't it? I think I like the boss thing better. But not in a Christ-centered home. In a Christ-centered home, we lead as servants. And, 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 and so, so that, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. And he goes on to say, love her as you love your own body. And, and he, here's, the, uh, here's the thing I, I maybe even mentioned here before, but it's really interesting to me. There is only one relationship in the world. In other words, Dave's here on the second row. Dave and I are friends. When I love Dave, I am loving my neighbor, a brother in Christ, right? And that's true for anybody in here, with one exception. You know what Paul says when I love Sherry in Ephesians 5? When I love Sherry, I'm loving who? I'm loving myself. Isn't that an interesting statement? Nothing else in Scripture comes there. Because when God says, when I bring you together and you're together like this and you're to be this kind of one unit and you're supposed to be so close and so intimate and that's the way it's supposed to work, when you love this person that is that close to you, you are loving yourself. Nothing else on earth is like it, folks. Nothing. And that's what Christ wants to do when both individuals are responding the way he they should be within that marital context. And I understand if one doesn't, there's all kinds of problems. I understand that. We live in a real world. But, but God has designed it to be very, very different. Do you see? And so he talks about a wife who is submitting and a husband who is loving and, that, and, and, and not focusing on all the negative, but instead just investing in this woman. And my goodness, all of a sudden you find something that you can't find anywhere else in the world. Isn't that true? He moves from there, and we need to move quickly here too. I just noticed my watch. So I, I will. I, I normally tend to speed up as time goes on. Okay. He then switches over to the child-parent relationship. And, and once again, notice what he says here. Starts with the children. Children, be obedient to your parents. And I, it's really wonderful. My kids are right down front here. So this is, this is, this is I mean, this is great. Okay. Anyway. Um, Anyway, children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Why? Why does he say this is well-pleasing to the Lord? Do you see the Christ-centeredness again? Look, am I a perfect parent? <laughs> Not on your life. Not on your life. I, I, I try to be. Ask my wife, ask my kids. They can tell you all about my foibles and mistakes. They're all over the place. Is there ultimate reason for obeying me because I bat a thousand? Because if it is, their obedience is going to be sporadic at best. Isn't that true? Their ultimate reason to obey me should be because they love the God that stands behind me. Isn't that what it says? Because they can rest in Him to follow the structure that He has designed and he'll work it all out at the end of the day. You heard about the little boy and probably has created problems for his mom. And his mom said, get over there and sit on that seat. And he went over there and plopped down on that seat. Put his arms together. 
And he was mad and somebody came by and said, what are you doing? He said, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. That's not exactly what obedience is, <laughs> is it? You know, when the Bible talks about obedience, it is both heart, attitude, as well as actions. And young people, wherever you find yourself, we as parents are not perfect. We all admit it. We all struggle. We're trying. But your ultimate reason to obey, we, we like it when you want to please us. And I like it when my, people say, hey, my, my children want to please. And, and I, that's part of it the, in their heart. That's part of it. I, I'm not denying that. Fair enough. But ultimately, you know why children you need to obey? It's because of Jesus. The one who stands behind all of this. Then he switches to the other section. Look at verse, uh, verse 21. Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. It's really, really interesting. And, and, and once again, in, in, in the Roman culture, um, the reason I think he's fo fo focusing primarily on father here and doesn't mention mother directly is, is, I mean, he obviously has talked about the mother by mentioning parents in verse 20. It's because at the end of the day, the end of the day, who is responsible in the home? The dad, right? Now, in the ancient world, if we were living in Rome, they had laws on the books that would tell you, if one of my kids rebels against me and gets out of line, you know what I can do? I, have, I can kill him. Have him killed, it's absolutely legal, absolutely appropriate. There's not clear evidence that that was followed very much in the culture, which I'm happy about. But the point is, on the books, being a father meant you do what I tell you to do and you keep your mouth shut because I'm the, I'm the authority here. But do you notice what Paul does here in this text? Paul says, don't you dare exasperate your children. And if you complement that with what he says over in the book of Ephesians, he says, don't make your children angry. And we can do that a whole bunch of ways. Sometimes it's my inconsistency that gets them. And, and anger. Anger is a child that inside is just so mad. Just angry that way. Just, I'm so mad at my parents. That's anger. Exasperation is the child who has tried to do things to please the parents again and again, but the, but the B-plus is never good enough. And what do they do? They just kind of give up. And they lose heart. And in a world where fathers ruled the day and could kill children, Paul comes on the scene and says, let me tell you something. Don't you do this. Don't you do that. Watch your inconsistency. Watch your harshness. Watch your self-centeredness. No, 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 do that. Instead, what does he say in Ephesians? Rather than draw, making them angry or exasperating them, I want you to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. See, there it is again. Everywhere you go when you read Paul, Jesus stands at the center. You know what scared me and continues to scare me in my parenting? Paul tells me, because I claim to be a Christian, that my parenting will either draw people closer to God or away from Him. Now, now they're responsible at the end of the day. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. But I influence. And that scares me a bit. 
Because God says, I want you to bring them up in the nurture. I want you to train them in such a way. And, and, and the admonition, I want you to speak to them in such a way. That they're drawn to God. That they're pointed to God. That He's central. So at the end of the day, when I come home and I say, hey, your room's a mess. Clean it up because it's, it makes me uncomfortable. And I don't like it. That may be all true. How am I drawing them to God with a statement like that? But to move and say, look, God has called us to be stewards of what he's given us. This isn't a particularly good stewardship right now. I can't even get from, from the door to the bed. There's so many things there. You know, or whatever. You, you know, but, but everything we do is about Christ. So he says, look, if you're a wife, you submit. And at the end of the day, you're submitting to Jesus because he's the center of your life and you do what he wants. And if you're a husband, you love her. You love her like Christ loved the church. And if you're a child, you obey because you want to please Jesus. And if you're a parent and a father and a mother, what you do is you move to them in such a way that you point them to the Lord. I mean, can you see what Paul's doing? I mean, that's why we're totally different, folks, from the world around us. Because at the center of everything we do in the home is Christ. And it drives us. Very quickly. He moves from the home to the workplace. Read something recently. Um, I don't know if it was a Pew report. It was seemed like it was somewhat reputable. That suggested that um, forty-five, only forty-five percent of people that are working are satisfied with their jobs. And if you're under twenty-five, it's only like thirty-five percent. And I don't know if we took a poll here. I mean, honestly, in the economy the way it is right now, most of us are just thankful that we can work. But I don't know how you feel about your job. And, 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 but, but think of it this way. If you were in the first century and you were a slave, what kind of options would you have? You know, hey, I don't like the way you treat me, pal. I'm going to leave you and go work for somebody else. Well, we can do that in our day, right? We can switch around. They couldn't in the first century. And, and clearly, this is a little bit of a different dynamic than the employer-employee relationship. I recognize that. And you've got to take all those things to, to grant it. Because what he does is, he looks at this area tied into the home where you would have both masters and slaves. And, and, and the other thing I want to say about slavery, it's very important. Does the Bible ever explicitly attack slavery? No, it doesn't. Does it ever explicitly support slavery? No, it doesn't. But you know what it does, though? It plants the seeds of the gospel into that structure in such a way that when they come to fruition and you talk about the equality of people, it ultimately becomes the undoing of that institution. That's how Paul approaches it. A little bit different. But, but nonetheless, when you move from... I think there's ramifications as we talk about an employee-employer relationship as you look at these things. Notice some of the things he says to the slave. Verse 22 to 25. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Did you see what he's doing again? It's really interesting. He goes on to say this. Whatever you do. So it's not just your attitude, verse 22. But whatever you do, do your work heartily with passion. As for the Lord, rather than for men. 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Or some translations will say, serve the Lord Christ. It could be either an indicative or an imperative. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. But see what he's doing? He steps into a world, and you think about it, if you're a slave in the first century, depending upon what home you're in and how good your master is, I mean, you are stuck, perhaps for life. Maybe doing some things that you feel are so menial and unimportant, like, what is this all about? You know what the gospel does? The gospel comes into a structure like that, and it gives hope to people, doesn't it? And now all of a sudden, a slave who got up before and he thought, look, the only way to move up is to, you know, say something that the master likes and maybe I'll get a, a promotion over that other slave and, you know, playing games and eye service and well, he doesn't see me so I don't have to do it right now. He does see me so I'll do it. And Paul says, forget it, man, forget it. You know what I want you to do? Forget that master and look to your ultimate master. You get up every day and when you walk into that place to work, whatever it is that God has called you to do, you do it for him. And this master always rewards. This master always remunerates. That's who he is. And you are free to take work and you, it, it becomes place and it, it has honor. Here's the other thing. The... the, the um, the, 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 the Protestant, what we call the Protestant work ethic, it's the same kind of thing. What it's done is, it takes work that sometimes can be viewed as just kind of menial. And so, sometimes I hear people say this, say, well, you know, I work and it's a place where I can kind of witness and so forth. But, you know, it's just kind of what I do. And then, but the real spiritual stuff, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't ever do that with work. The work itself is a spiritual sacrifice and an act of worship to God. So if you teach you teach to the glory of God. If you dig a ditch, you dig a ditch to the glory of God. Whatever it is, dignity is brought back into work because Christ is ultimately the object for what we are and the reason for what we do. Do you see what I'm saying? You can see the hope that would bring somebody in the first century. It brings us hope too. We can go from job to job, fair enough. But while we're in a job, it brings us perspective. And lastly, talks to masters. Perhaps the application would be to employers, I suppose. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master who is in heaven. Um, it's all about Christ. So here is a master in the first century who could just kill a slave at his whim if he so desired. And when the gospel comes into that relationship... Everything has changed. And Paul looks at those masters and says, don't you dare mistreat him or her. This is a person who is created in the image of God. And you treat them with dignity and justice and fairness with everybody else. You don't give one preferential treatment to this person and something else. That You don't do anything like that. You are just and you are fair in the way you treat. Because at the end of the day, you've got a master that you're going to answer to and he's in heaven. He doesn't like it when you mistreat people. Do, do, do you see what the gospel does? It talks about Christ-centered living. And he says, but I don't want to talk about it up there in the cloudy, fuzzy kind of, you know. No, no, no. It's in life. And it, it impacts 
husband-wife relationships, parent-child relationships, slave-master, employer-employee relationships. It touches every part of our life, folks. And it doesn't stop there. It extends from the workplace into our communities where we try to share the gospel. Notice what Paul says here. And Tim, this, this was really um, appropriate with some of the things you were praying today. Listen to what, what he says here in verse 2, chapter 4. Devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. It, it's an interesting combination, alert and thanksgiving, because alert means, hey, be careful, man. Thanksgiving means, yeah, but you can rest and take it easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's kind of what prayer is, isn't it? Where you're able on the one hand to say, God, I've got to be conscientious about all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, you're here, you're in control. So, all right. So, um, keeping alert with the attitude of prayer. Verse 3. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have been imprisoned. In order that I might make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Here's Paul sitting in prison because of the gospel. And he says, you know what? Pray for me. Pray for me like crazy. I'm the Apostle Paul, but I need prayer. And I want you to pray for me that, that God will give me opportunities and then when that opportunity comes, I will speak with clarity. Because I want them to know Jesus too. I don't want to just live Christianity amongst the church members. I want to do that. I don't want to just live it at home. I want to do that. Or in the workplace. I want to do that. I want to get it out to others. Because he's the center. And he should be for everybody. So Paul says, pray for me. I know I'm in jail, but I just want more opportunities. And when those opportunities come, let me take them. That's what we should be, folks. We should get together and say, hey, Tim, pray for me, man. There's this guy at work. And I'm hoping he's going to ask me something. I, I, the other day, I, 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 got my, I had to take my car in to get it repaired. And I, and, and I had one of those guys take me from, uh, the van guys take me from there to, to, to my work. And, you know, I'm sitting in the car and I got things to read and so forth. And the Spirit of God was just prompting me, Doug, look for opportunities here. You know, and sometimes I think to myself, okay, God, whatever. <sighs> Give me an opportunity. Would you know it? I was just asking about his family. He said, yeah, I had an uncle that just died. And he was a good man. I think he went to heaven. What do you think? Like, what am I supposed to do on that one? You know, like, say, well, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I said, well, okay, Lord, you gave it to me. Here I am. And I just thrust right into it and, and gave him. We were getting close to the stop. So I had about two or three minutes to give him the gospel. But I did. And, and we, had, we ended up having a really, really nice conversation. And, but that's the way our lives should be, shouldn't they? I mean, if Christ is central for everything I do and I'm trying to live him at workplace, I'm living at home, then, then, then I want to also get him out and I want to talk to other people. So Paul says, look, pray for opportunities. And, then, and he says, in the process, so you've got to back it up. So live, live with, with, with integrity and wisdom before them. Verse 5, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. That doesn't mean I have to live perfectly brothers and sisters in Christ. That means I need to live authentically. You know? It's okay for me to tell my neighbor, hey, forgive me for what I did there. I was wrong. Because that's Christianity. That's real Christianity, isn't it? 
So I don't have to be perfect before my neighbors. I have to be real in such a way that they can see what does it look like in a life when Christ is central and he's about changing people. And they'll say it. So conduct yourselves in that way. And, and thirdly, speak graciously. Verse 6. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt. So, you know, say it in an interesting, appropriate way, for goodness sake. Can we salt that? Put a little bit of Tabasco sauce on it. You know, make it, make it interesting. Um, but, but the idea of being gracious, I think, at the end of the day is this. I never want to communicate to somebody when I share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ that I'm better than them. That's, that's often what people hear, isn't it? Uh, you think you're better than me. No, 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 no. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where I found bread. That's it. I am lost and undone. I've been forgiven. I'm in the process of being transformed. I am not perfect. But God is at work. And so speak with grace. Speak with humility. That's just, that's just, being, that's just speaking honestly again. So speak this way. Um, Season as it were with salt, so that you may know how you ought to respond to each person. So the point is, Paul says, pray for opportunities. And when you get that opportunity, live it out before them. And when you speak to them, speak with graciousness and clarity so that they might hear the gospel. Can you imagine if Christ is so central in our lives that he impacts every one of those realms? Imagine what would happen to the chapel. And you guys are already doing this. I, I'm not attacking you. You're, you, you there's just, there's, you're stellar. People I know here are stellar. You're just great people. You love the Lord. But we all got distance to travel, don't we? And the more central Christ is in each one of these realms, the more he's glorified. And don't be surprised what he'll do. Let's pray.